This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 11th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Breaking news. There is an update to a story that is approximately 3,300 years old. This just in, they discovered a 10th plague. His name is Sean Spicer. Quote, Hitler didn't even sink to the level of using chemical weapons. What did you mean by that? I I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I I, I understand your point. Thank you. uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. There was not... In the in the he brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that, but I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns. It was brought to so the use of it. I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent. Oi, just oi. I think the Holocaust Museum motto of never forget might assume facts, not in evidence. And that clip we just played, that was his attempt at clarification. So I guess on this day he dipped twice. So ahistorical, nonsensical. And can we point out that not only is it wrong and stupid and Hitler comparisons just so lazy, can we also point out that it makes no sense for a White House to assert that a world leader is worse than Hitler if that White House has no plans to do anything about that world leader? At least Neville Chamberlain got a signature. I will note Both USA Today and NBC News, in their coverage of this statement or statements, thought it important to say, I'll read from NBC, the outrage on social media was swift, with reporters and public figures alike pointing out how wrong Spicer's comments were and how they come during the Jewish holiday of Passover. I just got to say that I think it would be just as mind-numbingly asinine on Shavuot or Simchat Torah or the Feast of St. Jerome, or Arbor Day, or International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Though upon hearing Sean Spicer's latest fumpfering foray into alternative facts, I am sure many will be asking this evening, why is this night different from other nights? On the show today, I spiel about the real news. It ain't Hitler not using the gas. But first, are you like me? Do you like monkeys? Are you convinced that there isn't a man, woman, or child alive who doesn't enjoy a delicious beverage? Do you know your cuts of meat and the address to an abandoned tower in New Rochelle? Well, in that case, I give you David Letterman and his biographer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Wake the kids, phone the neighbors from the home office in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. It's Letterman, the last giant of late night. Jason Zinneman, who covers comedy for the New York Times. Maybe we could get into that, but I'm so into his uh, biography, the whole story of Letterman, the phenomenon, all the shows. Hello, Jason. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here. So just how popular was uh, Late Night on NBC? Well, it, it all depends on, on uh, what you compare it to. I mean, the numbers for late night shows today are w- much lower than they were back then. So it actually looks pretty popular compared yeah. to even the, uh, you know, to the 12th, much more popular than the 1130 shows today. So it made a lot of money because it was the, uh, it got it got great ratings for that time slot and it got the right demo. I mean, that was the word on Letterman was that it kind of found this new college audience yeah. that did, wasn't watching TV before. This seems to be also about the time that the invention of the demo, not the invention, but the realization that yes. it's better to reach one 27-year-old than six 57-year-olds started to take hold. A huge, a huge shift. I mean, yeah. you're absolutely right. And I, I looked into this, that, you know, if you look at the news accounts, that didn't used to be a story. Nielsen would tell you the most popular shows. They never broke it out by demo. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And it's still pretty hazy on what, you know, did, was he really so successful among college students? Uh, or was that a, a narrative created? It's a little questionable. I mean, I think that Letterman cultural impact, as popular as he was, his cultural impact was much greater than the number of people. Carson had more people. Letterman, I would argue, mattered more than Carson, but the number of people watching was much less. Sure. Because I think comedy nerds, and there wasn't that concept either. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guy was popular and successful and artistic, but anyone who was a comedy nerd, an aspiring comedy nerd, possibly someone who wouldn't have become a comedy nerd but for Letterman, you could do nothing but respect him. It was sort of amazing what he was doing in a break from the entire idea of broadcasting, trying to be appealing to people or most people. Completely. And and people, I think, don't realize what a different world it was back then. Not only did you have to respect him, but if you were interested in that stuff, you watched Letterman. Today, there's no one, there's nothing like that because there's so many options. At 12.30 at night, you could be on Twitter, you could be on, you could be watching a million different channels. At 12.30 at night in 1986, if you were had an irreverent comic sensibility and were interested in cutting edge things, you were doing one thing and yep. that was watching David Letterman. Now this, uh, your American Dreamer show, it's a big hit for the network. It's on Saturdays. Saturdays. We right were, after uh, Car- uh, Carol oh, Burnett, right? Yeah, we were yeah. just picked up. Yeah, well, yeah. congratulations. Yeah, and, and you and uh, Carol Kane, who was here a couple of weeks ago, yes. she's terrific, very delightful. Yes, uh, she, nice uh, person. And, uh, uh, you know, a, a challenging person to work with. Really? And in, insofar as that uh, she, she makes the people around her uh, just be better, you know, well, and, yeah, and she good. challenges you to... Uh, I need some people like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I usually use this ploy to um, suck the audience in. Yeah. in. Uh, I'll do the audience sucking around here if you don't mind. <laughs> so Robert Urich was a guest, and he's not terrible, but he's just essentially a Hollywood blowhard, right. and he'd say things that weren't that funny, but he'd kind of, like, act out a little, give it a little Groucho Marx-esque sting. And very subtly, Letterman would just dig him. And that's, I think that that's what we were desperate for in our culture at the time that Letterman hit. Yes, I think we're desperate for it now, honestly. Like, I think we've gone to the exact opposite extreme. Right. Uh, We kiss celebrities' asses so much. And the whole definition of being a successful late night TV host is how much you could get the celebrities to play along with you in a clip that goes viral. Exactly. I mean, I was watching an interview with Letterman just just this week with, uh, from 87 or 88. It was, uh, 
he was on Howard Cosell's show. I was like, <laughs> and uh, the way he talked about celebrities, nobody who has a show talks like that anymore. Right. He was just he, you know, he expected them to come and yep. be funny and perform. Yeah. And uh, part of it was he got a reputation as being confrontational with celebrities and he was very funny in in, in doing so yeah there was just a deep skepticism towards show business that he had that was unlike anything else on tv and it's unlike anything else on tv now and yet i think even letterman would and does exist that he was unfair to some people he always struck out against um sincerity and caringness so if it was faux sincerity mm-hmm. it was great but sometimes like Cher, who's really a sincere person is like against landmines and stuff right. they butted heads because i think letterman interpreted her version of earnestness as showbiz phoniness but it really wasn't so it was a little unfair to her right now i think that's a good theory i think like i i think i think i read in the book about uh one he had a uh, Billy Idol on. Yeah. And he's exactly the kind of guy that Letterman really hated because Billy Idol is a phony playing a real punk rock guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think uh, Letterman really hated that kind of phoniness. And he would play up the kind of old fashioned, stodgy Midwestern guy when he was with him. And that was a great contrast yeah. because you're, see, you're watching this thing unfold. And if you had the sound off, you would think one guy has all the, the leather jacket, the, the spiky hair. He's the edgy one. And the other guy's <laughs> got a suit. And he's, yeah. a, but if you listen to it, Letterman comes off as the irreverent rebel yeah. and Billy Idol's. I mean, uh, seems ridiculous. It's a shame that that Miss America girl got discriminated against just for being natural. <laughs> Billy, I don't, I don't know if you've seen these photos, but there's, there's no way in hell you can call this natural. Uh... Would Letterman's show have been so great and groundbreaking if he didn't have the? Uh, you know, personal mishigas and self-loathing and just, I think, anhedonia, the inability <laughs> to experience joy, it would seem. Uh, no. And, and, and one thing that I learned through writing this book and is one of the big ideas for me for this book is that, uh, so we talked about like the, the morning show and the early project, but then once you get into the late 80s and the early 90s, the show becomes less about stunts and remotes and big eye conceptual ideas. And it becomes about this repressed self-loathing, neurotic, hilarious guy revealing himself through these layers of irony. The show becomes, like all great art is, a form to reveal like the deepest parts of your personality. And if you watched his show religiously, like I did as a kid, night after night after night, you started to be able to decode exactly how he was feeling that day. You could get a sense of, you know, what kind of shot he was taking at GE when he was happy, sad, vulnerable, whatever. It was like a kind of, you know, one man show. And that's, I think, you know, what, what makes him not just a great comedian and talk shows, but a brilliant singular artist is his ability to expose, even despite being this repressed, tightly wound, shy Midwestern guy, his ability to communicate himself over 30 odd years. It always puzzled me for how great he was and how much you and I and people who like comedy liked him on Late Night. Why would CBS think that that would be the thing that um, appealed to middle America more than Jay Leno did? (sighs) It's a good question. I mean, I think if you go back to that time, Letterman was seen in the press as far superior than Letterman. Sure. I mean, you yeah. know, he was a critical darling. He was this cultural phenomenon. And he, he was also, you know, seen as a guy who created this whole franchise. And CBS didn't have 
this tradition of of talk show tradition. You know, Leno had success. Or you could you could look at it back then and say Leno's success was because of Johnny, because of the tradition of Tonight Show. It was a gamble. There was no question about it. And I mean, that was the great late late night war. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I spent a lot of time in the book looking at that period, which is really interesting. The truth is, Letterman also won for the first year and a half. Yes. Uh, you know, he soundly beat Leno, not just in terms of the ratings, which he did, but also in terms of reviews and in terms yeah. of buzz. I mean, the reason that Stephen Colbert is there, Stephen Colbert still has the same name uh, show as Letterman did. He, Letterman started a tradition yeah. on CBS. It could have easily not worked and they could have, they could be a new show there or some, or, or reruns. In fact, he won early on. I think Bill Carter's book uh, ends with Letterman winning. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. I mean, the, the, the question is, and I think you, you sort of uh, suggest the right answer in your question, is why did he start losing to Leno? And there's all sorts of theories, which I explore in the book. Is it because of the Hugh Grant thing? Is it because of the he had bad Oscars? Is it because, but fundamentally, which I think is what you were suggesting, Leno is a more populist entertainer sure. with a broader appeal. Yeah. The argument is just over the long haul of many years. That doesn't make, make him better. In fact, he's clearly worse. His legacy will be uh, nothing relative to Letterman's legacy. But in terms of just raw numbers, and actually one of the interesting moments of reporting I had is I talked to Warren Littlefield, all right, who was the you know head of NBC. And one of the things that, that perplexes me and kind of bugged me about the way people talk about late night, if you look in the press, is the one metric for success once he moved to CBS was ratings. Yeah. And they both made such tons of money. They both made tons of money. And we saw the late night war. It would be a war as if both sides were just prospering exponentially. That kind of war. And at the end of the day, who cares? Like when you look at it historically, like who cares what the ratings were about? You know, I was like, why did you go with Leno instead of Letterman? And, you know, do you regret it? He's like, well, you know, if you look at the ratings, it made, and he's right. I I was like, yeah, but do you agree that Letterman was, you know, more substantial artistically? Yes. So at the end of the day, even if it's lower ratings, isn't it still a mistake, right? Yeah. And he see, you know, it's like these guys had trouble even answering that question. And then he actually contacted me the next day and he made the point that that difference in ratings equals advertising money, which means you can employ people. Which, yeah. So there's, there's real financial stakes which, there. Which means, you know, also like your NBC suite of shows gets more attention. Yep. Maybe he could say Seinfeld wouldn't have been popular. Well, although Seinfeld was a great Letterman guest too. Um, your... Your interviews with him for the book, what were they like? Did he try to avoid, do the thing where he's funny and deflecting, but not really giving you the uh, meaty information did you that you wanted? How did you use his, his interviews to inform the book? Uh, this is a whole saga. I, <laughs> I, I, I signed up, I, I sold this book with the idea that I wouldn't need an interview with Letterman, which was a little bit of self-delusion perhaps <laughs> and so and i and he never I, I i talked to his people early on and they never said no they never said yes or they never said you know they never gave me a date i didn't interview him until i'd done reporting for a year and a half two years which turned out to work perfectly because uh by the time i interviewed him i had reported the hell out of his whole life i knew exactly you know, what I wanted to ask him. I wasn't on a fishing expedition. Yeah. And then he, when he eventually agreed to interview me, doesn't have a reputation as a particularly great interviewer. I was told I had an hour with him. So I was like, I could talk to this guy for yeah. t- two weeks. But, and also, what the hell else is he doing? And, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I got to say, he was a spectacular interview. He, uh, he, we ended up talking for four hours and I probably could have talked for longer, but I'd ran out of questions and I, because I was preparing for one hour and uh, he didn't dodge anything anything he um 
was direct. He, I think partly he, I think, enjoyed the interview more than he would have if it was before the show was over because he didn't, you know, that he had been out of the limelight for nine months. So we were talking about, you know, the, his show and he said as much, he said he enjoyed it. Uh, I think also, you know, it was a little bit like a, this is your life for him. I mean, I talked to his, you know, friends from elementary school and, you know, so his eyes lit up and he said, how is he? Stuff yeah, like that. A yeah, lot of that. Yeah, a well. lot of that. Yeah. I mean, his people he knew back in LA and people he knew, a lot of that interview was me saying, like, floating various of my pet theories. So that made me feel uh, more confident. Because he always seems resistant to a psychoanalysis. So maybe your pet theories weren't of that ilk. Well, but th- by this point, I had read every single interview ever done on Letterman. So I knew what questions would get a stock answer, and I didn't ask them. Yeah. And, and, so what was a question that got a good, interesting answer? A pet theory type question. I mean, you know, to this point that you brought up about how, you know, he became less adventurous. And, you know, you can imagine him pushing back. And I'm sure there's some people on the show who, who push back and think that, you know, the book focuses too much on on this area. First of all, he had a substantive reason that he thought that, you know, he couldn't beat Leno as a monologue and that what his strength was was in conversation. So he's going to make the show more about that. And two, he said after his heart attack, he uh, didn't want to go to rehearsal anymore. And that, you know, changed the show. The show became more about his spontaneous reactions to things. If you don't go to rehearsal, then certain things are harder to pull off. He talked about that very candidly. The way he talked about the the blackmail thing was, I, I thought he wouldn't answer any of that stuff. Yeah. You know, he, that was a real dark period for him. I think I have a quote somewhere in the book about, you know, I think the show was sort of a cathartic thing for him. He was, it was, uh, you know, I mean, I think Letterman's default pose is to be humble and blame himself. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, when I would bring up the late night wars, he didn't go after Warren Littlefield or whatever. He blamed himself every time. And that's also its own thing to worry about from as a reporter. Because if you... You can't all, take him at his word for that necessarily, right? If you blame... Well, Letterman his, blames himself and then it could end there, but that's not actually the whole story Exactly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, if he blames himself for everything, then, every, then it can't yeah. be true. He was not the slightest bit defensive. I mean, at no point was he... To the extent that he wanted to make something clear, it was that he... That his writers deserve more credit and he deserves less. And I think the book already... I don't think I give Letterman short shrift in the book. And the part of the argument of the book is to understand how Letterman evolved, you have to look beyond just Letterman. You have to look not only at what the writer, who the writers were, and they had many brilliant writers yeah. who went out to do The Simpsons, et cetera, but also the, the structure of the show, which changed, the production team, et cetera. And that he was completely on board with. But, you know, is that because his reflex is to, you know, give other people credit and not himself? Uh, and uh, who knows? But I, I, I tried to take what he said and also report around it, take what everybody else said, and then try to get as close to the truth as I could. All right. Wake the kids. Phone the neighbors. Letterman, the last giant of late night. Jason Zinneman wrote the book. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. And now the spiel. The governor of Alabama is, well, is Kay Ivey. Alabama's second female governor, by the way. Oklahoma, Alabama currently have female governors. California, New York have never had a female governor. Progressivism, thy name is Andrew or Elliot or Gray. But it is the reason for Kay Ivey's ascendance that caught my attention. Outgoing governor Robert Bentley was a little too outgoing. I mean, amore fu.
the heart wants what the heart wants. And the governor's septuagenarian heart lusted after, apparently successfully, one of his top aides, Rebecca Caldwell Mason, a married mother in her mid-40s, a former beauty pageant contestant. Now, what I find interesting about this isn't the stuff that undid the governor. Powerful man is lustful. Adoring assistant accommodates his carnal desires. Oh, yeah, sure. It turns out he's a hypocrite because he's a Christian. Though, how are you going to get elected to high office in Alabama if you're not vocally Christian? And yes, he used state funds. He misappropriated campaign funds. He played guilty to that. That alone should have been enough to propel him out of office. But all that stuff, that's familiar. That's not the insidious part. In fact, that's not the real story. I want to talk about the real story. The real story is that the aide, Rebecca Mason, though working for the governor, was not a state employee. She was paid by an outside political entity dedicated to the political well-being of Governor Bentley. And one of the consequences of this arrangement was that her communication on behalf of the governor and his political agenda was outside the reach of investigators and public records requests. This is troubling. And if replicated successfully in a non-affair setting, this could be dangerous, a dangerous new tactic in shutting out the public. I think that's the real story. The name of the organization that uh, Rebecca Mason worked for, by the way, was the Alabama Council for Excellent Government, or ACEGOV. ACEGOV. Now the ICEGOV. I guess the Society for Excellent Government, or SEXGOV, was taken. Now, the next story where I want to tell you what the real story is, is about Wells Fargo. Perhaps you read that the CEO and a top executive of Wells Fargo have to give up a lot of their compensation for the roles they played in the phony account scandal. Remember this? Wells Fargo employees, in order to meet quotas, opened accounts for existing customers, accounts that the customers never knew about, 2 million accounts. In some cases, the victims had to pay fees on the accounts they never knew existed. In other cases, the customers' credit scores might have been adversely affected. So because of this, here's what Wells Fargo did. They refunded the customers for the expenses they incurred. That is nice for them to return the money they essentially stole. And the refunds averaged 25 bucks for fees and expenses, and the company paid a fine. And you probably also heard that the CEO and the top lieutenant had to give back, claw back a lot of their money. John Stumpf, CEO, had $69 million clawed back from his compensation. Carrie Tolstead had $67 million clawed back. And that was the headline. But that's not the real story. The real story is how much they got to keep. Stumpf got to keep 60% of the $174 million he was to collect from Wells Fargo. That is $104 million. Tolstead retained $67 million of her $125 million pay package. Fortune calculated their holdings in Wells Fargo after the penalties and clawbacks. Uh, Tolstead, $52 million. Stumpf, $132 million. My point isn't that these two should be poor or have nothing or go to jail or lose everything for one misdeed, one pretty, pretty bad misdeed. It's that the headline, the real news, the real story should be Wells Fargo executives pay clawed back enormously wealthy bank executives remain enormously wealthy. And lastly, in the real story, perhaps you saw over the weekend that some guy asked the Wendy's Twitter feed, how many retweets do I need for a year's worth of chicken nuggets? Wendy's answered, eh, 18 million. The guy, a 16-year-old named Carter Wilkinson, is now at a little over 2 million, but he's going to lose. 
And you know what? He should lose. Let me do the math for you. A year's supply is, I don't know, what would a year's, like four nuggets a day anymore is really unhealthy. Actually, that much is probably unhealthy. They sell nuggets four for 99 cents. So a year's supply would cost this guy $365. The real headline should be, man's quest to save seven bucks a week captivates Twitter. America gives a damn about a task that amounts to mowing your neighbor's lawn every other week. Or teen could babysit for a half hour more, instead puts effort into more than quintupling existing retweet record. Yeah, that retweet of Ellen DeGeneres at the Oscars, that got like three and a half million retweets. Carter, hold a bake sale, get a part-time job and quit after a week. Pour your change into a Coinstar machine, earn it, and internet defeat Carter. Because the real news here is, if you give a boy a retweet, you give him nuggets for a year. If you deny him a retweet, you save him from high cholesterol for a lifetime. And that's it for today's show. The top 10, top 10 gist staffers slash future Trump administration positions. Gist staffers, future Trump administration positions. Number 10, gist producer Chris Berube. Number nine, secretary of everything, Jared Kushner. Number eight, gist producer Mary Wilson. Number seven, interim moil Sean Spicer. Number six, emergency moil to Sean Spicer. Jared Kushner, which technically falls under Secretary of Everything. Number five, executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai. Number four, ambassador to Singapore, KT McFarlane. Number three, ambassador to Libya, Sebastian Gorka. Number two, Steve Bannon, ambassador to Syria. And the number one, just staffer slash future administration member. It's a tie. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And Assistant Secretary of Energy, Bob, the guy who says he once worked in a coal mine. The gist, if it wasn't a real podcast, it wouldn't do this. Um, Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.